Welcome to Bible and Stuff, a podcast about the Bible and stuff. I'm Glenn. And I'm Tanner. And this week on the show, we had the privilege to have Dr. Alan Noble on talking with us. Well, I mean, I had the privilege of talking. Sorry, Tanner had the privilege. (laughs) I was homesick with my daughter this week, so I did not get the chance to join, Uh, but it was cool that he was able to to come on and it sounds like you didn't th- screw things up too bad so that's I'm, awesome i mean i guess the listeners can be the judge of that <laughs> uh, it's still a, it's still up for debate but alan was great uh alan's super smart uh and i got a lot out of our conversation and uh i think you would like him not because just because of all of those things but also because you have some commonalities in this mostly in the fact that you have a beard and you're bald <laughs> Of course. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that really. Yeah. So much. Alan may or may (laughs) Alan and I may or may not have talked about that a little bit. Uh since you weren't there, we took advantage, but it's fine. (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Well, I I cannot wait for us to kind of dive into this episode. So have a listen. I hope you enjoy. Uh and yeah. All right, guys, today we are joined by Dr. Alan Noble, who is an associate professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, co-founder of Christ and Pop Culture, and an advisor for the AND campaign. He's the author of multiple books, including the one we'll be talking about today, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. Thanks for coming on the show, Al. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I've... I've bragged a little bit beforehand, but I'm excited to have another Oklahoma guy. I'm excited that there's a an, an, some OBU representation in the room today. Um, even though you're a transplant, I'll still take it. I'll take what I can get. Yeah. When you're from Oklahoma, you can't be too picky because uh, there's not as much. It's, it's not as big as I'm in Texas now. There's not as much to, to pull from. So you take what you can get because <laughs> uh, everything's bigger in Texas. That's a real point of pride down here. I, f- I feel like you've already gotten into the Texas propaganda. <laughs> Because there's been a lot of talking points I've just heard from you. It is is definitely real. It's everywhere. Uh, So it just seeps in real fast. Uh, The other thing, go ahead. I was was amazed when I moved to Texas to go to Baylor. And uh, I went to HEB and they had Texas-shaped chips tortilla chips and, and I, was, I was just and coming from california i was like we don't have pride like people in california they look down on other states but nobody's like california is so awesome we need a sh- yeah. chip shaped in california you know um, <laughs> yes. and so that i still you know amazed by that sort of yeah oh but it's it's everywhere and you know heb apparently is a real gym but i don't even live close enough to an heb to enjoy oh, that man. what so. are you even doing in texas it, it's like what's the pointless. point <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I'm excited about, of course, besides the book that we are going to talk about at some point, but I'm also excited about uh, the signature Alan Noble hat that is involved oh, in the yeah. show today, because uh, it gives me hope for one day that maybe I can pull off a hat like that when my hair <laughs> continues to to get less and less. See, so what you know, for me, uh, I, I would walk to to work, and my wife was like, "You're bald. You're gonna get." skin cancer you need to wear a hat if you're going outside and so i started wearing a hat because of that and now i'm wearing it indoors because frankly when i'm on video and i got a bald head um i'm gonna shine there's another there's so glare and it's a bit much it's distracting for me so this is what we're doing it's also cold i I hate to lead with that but i have to bring it up because our co-host who i've already told you today isn't here is also bald and i give i give him not a small amount of grief about it. So maybe that's a suggestion he can take and use and it would, could improve his life all the way around. Add, you know, it's it's great to accessorize, you know, you get a, yeah. you know, take yeah. it. Okay. Make all it. right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll quit now. Okay. <laughs> um, so the book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. The title there obviously gives us a hint of, of what our big idea is that we're going to dive into, but I, I want to really start with the subtitle uh, because I think that's a really interesting thing, and, and it's actually where you start within the introduction. I, I almost wanted to like read three pages of the introduction because it's so relatable, the way you describe how we function in mm. the modern West. And so I'd love to hear you explain that. What do you mean when you say inhuman world and how does that play itself out 
for us in you know current life. Can you just read those three pages? Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the, the part of my thesis here is that the, the way we've structured society is based off of a, what I call a false anthropology. And what I mean by that is any society, every society, as they're designing the rules, laws, social standards, norms, aesthetics, uh, the arts, um, education, politics, all, everything, right? As we design these parts of society, they're always designed with a certain image, idea, conception of what it means to be a human being because society's role is to facilitate you being a human in community in some sense, right? So mm-hmm. um, if you take this just speculatively and imagine what would happen if you had a society that, that began that process, but they began with the wrong blueprint, right? So they b- began with the wrong assumption of what it means to be human. Well, mm-hmm. the, the natural result would be that you would have humans walking around, moving, living in a space that was not designed for them. And as you can imagine, it would be well, uncomfortable at, at the very least. And, um, but more importantly, it, fundamentally inhuman. So, and by that, I mean, not created, not built with, with the idea of what a true human is. Um, and so, uh, I argue in the book that that is in fact the case with our contemporary society, that we have what I call a false anthropology. And because of that, we set up laws and practices and norms that, constantly degrade us, constantly create friction and agitation. They make us alienated from each other, from God, from the earth. Um, they, they cause all kinds of anxieties and depressions and feelings of inadequacy and confusion. And um, at the same time, this society offers to, to help us, um, um, but it does it in ways that still fundamentally assume that false anthropology. So we're never really able to get out. And the analogy I give at the beginning of the book is is the, this idea of, of a lion pacing in a cage. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, there's a condition called zoocosis that, that uh, some caged animals have where they will uh, act in a – uh, neurotic way. Specifically, they'll, they'll, let's say, pace in circles. And so even if they have this beautifully designed, designed by, by literally by the experts, let's say that the, the people who know more about African lions than, than, than certainly than African lions know, right? Like all their <laughs> diets and the history and all these things, right? What does an yeah. African lion need to live a healthy life? And so the experts will get together. They'll go to the zoo. They'll say, okay, this is how you build this environment, this for this animal. And then, and yet, despite all that, despite Despite all the money and the expertise and the technique and the efficiency, the, all these things, this lion is pacing in circles. Um, and, and you can see this. It, it's a very common thing to see zoo animals obsessively pacing. And when you see that, it's very obvious this creature is not happy. Like this is, this is, <laughs> this, this, this animal needs a therapist, right? This is not, there's something yeah. deeply mistaken here. Um, when I read about this condition, what was particularly fascinating to me was the, the way it's treated, the two my, two primary ways it's treated are uh, through enrichment activities and antidepressants. And when I read that, I thought, like, that's me. Like, oh, <laughs> like when yeah. I when I am in society and I'm anxious and depressed and I'm rubbing up against it when I'm living in an environment that people said, hey, this is built for you to be a successful person. Right. And I'm like, but this isn't this does not feel like it. For example, I feel constantly overwhelmed. I feel like I can never catch up, never keep up, never be enough. I always feel like I'm just trying to make it through the day. Well, that's a sign that the environment I'm living in is disordered. And so what does society say to me? Well, you you need some enrichment activity, so go for a run or watch this TV show and here's some antidepressants. Um, and so th- that's, that's kind of this sort of an overview in the book. I try to spend quite a bit of time talking about the different ways in which um, our society is inhuman and the, the, the expectations that are placed on us. But that, that kind of gives a at least a general idea. No, that's super helpful. And I think uh, I have a number of questions there, but one thing I wanted to acknowledge early on is that's both the great thing and the hard thing about the book is it would <laughs> it would feel easier to have a book that's just like 
run more, <laughs> like go on walks, and that fixes our problem. Uh, so that that's the difficult piece of it. But the great thing is you're actually saying it's much deeper than that. And if we can dig down and, and become more aware of that, it, we're going to see the millions of ways that's that, that that works itself out. Um, and I, yeah. I'm realizing, too, that it uh, corresponds to but the best parenting guideline I have, and I'm sure I picked this up somewhere and didn't come up with it myself, is uh, the high value rule or whatever. Like the thing I get, the, I try to squeeze the most value out of is I tell my kids, don't use something in a way that it wasn't intended to be used. And the reason mm. I like that is because it applies to a million things. It's not just, hey, we don't stand in chairs. It's, hey, here's a principle <laughs> that applies to a bunch of things because when you start to misuse things in a way that they weren't designed to be, you're almost yeah. always going to experience pain or at the very least, uh, less effectiveness, right? Like right. if you try to hammer a nail with a screwdriver, you can maybe do it, but you also might hurt yourself and it's not going to be as good as if you would just hit it with a hammer, uh, and right. I think that's kind of exactly what you're getting at. But that then for us begs the question, how is the world designed in such a way that isn't fit for us? And I think that goes back to the title that I said earlier, kind of starts to piece that apart for us. Yeah, so my my argument is that uh, contemporary people sort of begin with the assumption that we fundamentally, um, I would say ontologically, are our own and we belong to ourselves. So what does it mean to be a a person? It means that your life is a project. It's a project that only you can define, only you can describe, only you can start, only you can finish, only you can judge, only you can make progress on. Um, And uh, that places uh, an incredible burden upon the individual, the modern individual. We're, we're sold this anthropology as a promise of liberty. And what we're told is you can be who you want to be. It, it, it almost if you have the, 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 uh, the income, if you have the finances, um, everything in your life is plastic. You can change your name, you can change your body, you can change everything, everything. There's always a way to do it. If you can afford it, you can change it. And so that's presented to us as this this, this great thing. We have the ability to pursue, to become really whatever we want to become. We just have to put in, we just have to put in the work. Uh, but there is a, a flip side to that. And that is that when there are... Um, when our existence is entirely dependent upon our uh, ideas and our actions, it's crushing. Um, And so I describe in the book these, uh, I think it's five, what I call responsibilities of Mm self-belonging. And they're the implications. If, 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 If it's true, if we belong to ourselves, then what does that mean? If we fundamentally belong to ourselves, um, what does that have? What implications that have on things like uh, purpose and meaning and values and um, belonging? And I'm missing one identity. There you go. Yes. Identity. Identity yeah. is one of the biggest ones, right? So, for example, you know, we're we're told that we fundamentally have to define ourselves and project ourselves out into the world, right? This is our op- obligation. Nobody can define you. You have to determine for yourself who you are, and you have to live out that life authentically. And of course, who? How do you know if you're living authentically? Well, only you can know that, right? You have to look inside yourself and 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 determine what that is. Um, and so that puts us on this treadmill where we're constantly striving to project ourselves, to define ourselves, to figure out what gives our life purpose and, and uh, all these sort of things. And it's, um, it's overwhelming. It's, it's, yeah. it's overwhelming. Um, yeah. It's why we need the walks and the antidepressants. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so some of those things we're going to need. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, you know, some of these things are just, they're just normal and they're helpful. And they're, you know, walks are good and sure. antidepressants have a purpose. But what I would say is, and what I argue in the book is that, that um, 
you know, it's not about any one use of antidepressants and it's not about any one use or w- one example or instance of somebody with a mental disorder. It's mm-hmm. when you look at the rise in the use of antidepressants, the rise in the mental health crisis that, that our country has. Um, and you also combine that with um, the declining life expectancy, particularly among middle-aged men. Right. So for the first time, this was pre-COVID, for the first time since really World War One and the Spanish flu, the lifespan of the average man, middle-aged man, was declining. And that doesn't happen in industrialized countries. It always goes up. We find new ways to live longer and longer, but it was actually declining in ours. Yeah. And um, the reason for that, according to economists, has been what are called deaths of despair. People dying from drug overdoses, which have only increased since the pandemic started, uh, alcoholism and suicide. And so I think when you package all those things together, um, it, it paints this portrait of a society where it's very obvious that there are, these are symptoms. There's a disorder mm-hmm. here. This is not, you know, if we have this advanced culture with all this technology and progress and 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 healthcare and you know and wealth, and then we look around and people are miserable. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think part of, not entirely, but part of the explanation has to do with these these res- responsibilities of self-belonging, which are just unbearable. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems like, and me joking about the antidepressants in the walk, is it seems like the only natural conclusion to that is we, we, we have to look to things to help us cope. Because yeah. we feel this this overwhelming pressure uh, yeah. that we don't really know how to get out from under. So a lot of times, I think we we just push into numbing or avoiding or the, those problems instead of trying to get yeah. to the bottom of it. Oh, you know, you mentioned parenting before, and so just as an illustration of this point, which which is an excellent point, I think is dead on, is that um, you know, parenting is a great example of how we get overwhelmed. So when you become a parent, um, <laughs> there's this overwhelming pressure to be an excellent parent, to be the most efficient parent possible, right? In yeah. the back of your mind, you know that your child is going to have to compete in an intense meritocracy. So a, a, a society where if they screw up, if they don't get into the right schools, um, they're going to fall behind and somebody else will take their place and they won't be successful. So we have that in the back of our minds. And then we have experts from every field, you know, uh, people in the church, psychologists, sociologists, uh, you know, political people, you know, everybody coming in and saying, well, you know, what your child really needs is to do X, Y, and Z. And if they don't have these activities or they don't do these things or you don't read this many pages to them every day, then they're going to not develop properly. And then it's going to be, you know, your responsibility. And um, you get overwhelmed. You get overwhelmed. You constantly feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm not being enough of a parent. Mm -hmm. And then these coping mechanisms come in. And sometimes they'll be maybe what we could call sort of positive coping mechanisms. In other words, uh, uh, techniques that claim to help us fulfill these burdens that society is putting on us. So uh, somebody will come in and say, well, um, I know you're not reading to your kid enough. So here we're going to get you this audiobook subscription just for kids so that your kid can get uh, all this reading that they need and you don't have to do it. And so you say, okay, all right, I'm going to do that. Or or whatever it might be, right? Somebody has a system to help you allegedly at least fulfill this burden that's been placed upon you. Now, some of that's some of that can be good, but what ends up happening is it's the accumulation of all these systems that becomes overwhelming and overbearing and too much. And the other possibility is what you described as kind of uh, kind of numbing. So the you know, the parent that's cons- feels like a constant failure, constantly inadequate, right? Um, you know, as soon as the kid gets down for bed, right, all they're going to do is is watch TV or, you know, scroll endlessly on the internet. Be- why? Because they feel so, so much anxiety. They, uh-huh. they know what they should be because they've been told over and over and they know they can't be that thing. 
and they're exhausted. And the way we set up cities um, and, and housing, they probably haven't seen many other adults that day. So they're lonely and depressed and overwhelmed and feeling inadequate. And so they're like, yeah, I'm going to numb myself with Instagram and some ice cream or something, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and it doesn't fix the problem. Yeah. That's why I thought like those three pages of the intro were so helpful because you pretty succinctly hit pain points that I think almost everyone, if they stop for a second and they're honest, sort of like, yes, I feel that. And even the conversation we're having now as a parent, I'm like, yeah, I'm all, <laughs> I'm right there with you, bud. Uh, and so that begs the question for all of us. I mean, we're going, how do we fix this? <laughs> and <laughs> because what you've, uh, absolutely describe the problem as we are essentially at the core, at the base of it all, believing that we are our own. And of course, it's no secret. The title of the book is "You Are Not Your Own." What explain that to us, and and how does that help us? Yeah, so I'm getting this obviously from the New Testament, but but also more directly from the Heidelberg Catechism, which um, the first question and answer in the Catechism is, "What is your only comfort in life and in death?" Which is a, just a fantastic question. Um, and it's always encouraging to me because life is very difficult. We don't talk about that enough. Life is very difficult. And what that question implies is that, you know, when you're sharing the Christian faith with someone, one of the first questions they need an answer for is, where do you get comfort? <laughs> right? And I'm like, yeah, I feel that. I need some comfort. Where is Where am I supposed to get comfort? And the yeah. answer is uh, that you are not your own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, well, that's remarkable. That's a remarkable statement, especially in a, a contemporary world, because most of us, I think, would say, even within the church, that it's not comfortable to belong to anyone else. It's um, It can actually be pretty frightening, um, uh, because when you belong to yourself, you have some security. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think, we like to imagine that, you know, uh, we might not be able to trust other people, but we can trust ourselves, right? And in the church... In the past few years, so many examples of abusive pastors and leaders, and you can get to a place where you just have um, no trust in anyone else. And when that happens, the idea of belonging to yourself uh, and only yourself uh, is comforting, right? Because mm-hmm. you feel like, I, well, I'm not going to abuse myself. And I think there's problems with that thinking because if we are really honest with ourselves, we know that, that actually uh, we very often do things that are that are toxic to us, that are really damaging to us. And, and, um, and sometimes we need, actually very often, I think we all need friends who can step in and say, this is killing you, or this is really harmful. Um, so um, it's a, it's a uh, you know, I think a, a counterintuitive claim for a contemporary person that actually belonging to God would give you comfort. Um, we'd mm-hmm. prefer autonomy, but it, it, it is a comfort, and the reason it's a comfort is that it lifts those responsibilities of self-belonging. So, for example, if uh, I am not my own but belong to Christ, that means my identity is not in question. You see, in a society where everyone belongs to themselves, their, everyone's identity is questionable. Like, how, mm-hmm. how do I know who Alan is? Right? What 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 is an Alan? Well, nobody else is going to figure out that for me. Fundamentally, I have to do it. Right? I've got to define myself and project myself out in the world. And since literally everyone else is doing that, everyone else is shouting their name into the void, trying to get attention and uh, and, uh, and approval. I'm gonna. I can't stop doing it. I have to constantly be on, let's say, social media or out in public or whatever it might be, trying to be something be someone. So I know who I am because everything feels fluid. Everything feels uncertain. And the modern life is a, a, a sort of a perpetual identity crisis. Well, mm-hmm. but if we belong to Christ, then even when we don't know who we really are, even when we have doubts and we're uncertain about you know, when we're being honest with people and when we're manipulating people and when our intentions are pure or, or when we have mixed motives— there is one being who looks on us with approval and love and knows us and knows us in all our complexity, all our paradoxes with our sin and loves us. And um, 
And that person, that witness to our existence, God, um, is unchanging. And so what that means is if we belong to Christ, we might we might walk around feeling like we aren't sure who we are and our identity is questionable. And we might feel like we need to go and search for something and change our clothing style or our music preferences or our political leanings or whatever it might be. Um, but those are social pressures. The reality is that our identity is secure. It is certain because there's someone who sees us for who we truly are. Um, and the same is true with all the other responsibilities, whether it's belonging or, or values or meaning or purpose. Um, there's a, a ground to those things, um, whereas in the you know, contemporary anthropology, all those things are uncertain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a great comfort. I, I think you're exactly right. It is very, it is very comforting. And something like we were talking about before, how we've uh, here on the show, we've really emphasized spiritual disciplines and how to think about that rightly and how to begin to practice them. And one of the things we continue to come back on is you have to start from a place of grace, right? If, if you mm. get spiritual disciplines intertwined with I'm trying to earn something from God or I'm trying to, you know, get favor from him through certain rituals or whatever, it, it's it's all going to end badly. You have yeah. to start from a place of there is already grace and love and affection for you that is available. Um, some of it you can experience without ever developing a spiritual discipline. Yeah. And for us, one of the ways we talk about developing spiritual disciplines is that it is simply a way to to experience more of it, right? God acts mm. through certain pathways, his word, prayer, uh, fellowship with other believers. And so we're trying to align ourselves with those ways. Um, but I, I think... How that ties in here is with you talking about comfort, something that I've had kicking around for a while is that's actually very motivating. Whereas when mm. we feel all the pressure and the shame about maybe not living up to what we would like to be or should be or or what society wants us to be, that it's almost... It's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're so weighed down by all that. You're never going to actually achieve those things that you're weighed down by because you haven't achieved them, if yeah. that makes sense. And so uh, that's all very demotivating. So it's not, it's just not helpful to yeah. making any progress. But if you go and you start in this much, much more comforting place, I think you actually will find that you have – you have more ability to move in a direction that you would like to move. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Do you track with that? No. Yeah, it does. I feel like you're smarter than I am based on this conversation. So I'm just looking for assurance at this point, Alan. So I don't know if you've noticed, but the whole time we've been doing this podcast, we've been on the boardwalk. It's amazing. It's really hot out today, actually. I know, but the breeze comes in every now and then. It really it makes you feel good, you know, coming off the ocean behind us. You can even hear people laughing and having a good time down at the carnival a little ways down. Yeah, and I between the funnel cake smells and the smell of suntan lotion, I am just, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> but yeah, we're busking it up at the beach today. It's great. We got our table set up. We're, we're doing our podcast here. Uh, and it's amazing. Even just people watching is is really fun for me in this moment. Yeah, it's a really interesting practice that we've taken up here, busking, but it helps us keep the lights on. And so for you guys who aren't here in real time, we need to set up a solution for you too, and that's a virtual tip jar. So while you may not be this guy rollerblading by with his boombox or this nice couple here just walking their dog, you can still help us out. And that's the way to do it. If you want to support us and you want to help us keep this thing going, consider giving through that link. And hey, who knows where you'll see us next week. Yeah, so in the book I talk a lot about the idea of technique, which is which are methods for maximizing efficiency, and I talk mm-hmm. about this under the the, the uh, value section is one of the responsibilities of self belonging, and, and in that section I argue that you know when 
all values seem fluid and we can't agree on, let's say, sexual norms or uh, other, any other ethical norms, we gravitate towards things that are measurable. We want to be able to say, this causes measurable harm, therefore, you know, now we can say um, it's wrong. Mm. Um, and in other words, we tend to uh, gravitate towards um, judging things based on whether or not they're efficient. If something's in, e efficient, then we, we tend to think, well, this is a, a good thing. And the danger here is um, that when efficiency becomes the main value that society holds, um, other values which are more important actually fall by the wayside. So goodness, beauty, and truth. Um, and instead, we become focused on methods. How do we more, you know, more efficiently do this? So this, yeah. uh, all that to say, this shows up in, in spiritual disciplines, right? And so, you know, it's, um, people will come along and say, okay, um, in your life, Mr. Parent, there's a, a most efficient way to put your kid to bed. There's a most efficient way to potty train them, right? You got to use the right system, a most efficient way to read to them. Um, also a most efficient way or, uh, to spend time with your spouse, uh, to, to cook food, to exercise. Oh, and here is also the best method for reading the Bible and praying and doing these other things, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's always somebody else who has a, an even more efficient um, method. Um, and that can, um, that can overwhelm us. And you're absolutely right that it becomes, um, it, it does become a kind of work where we're, where our thought is because there's a more efficient, a better way to pray or read my Bible. That means that, um, I'm inadequate and I'm not in right relation mm -hmm. to God and I'm not doing enough. So if I can just find a little bit more time in my day to do that, then I will feel whole. I'll feel you know, accepted in these sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. and then we, and then we do that and we, we, we make more time by, uh, no longer exercising or something. Right. And then we're like, Oh, great. Yeah. Now I'm a failure over here. Or we take time away from our kids. Yeah. Just, you know, there's always something, always something yeah. that we're doing because everyone is demanding constant self-optimization. You've got to be optimizing every second of the day. And mm -hmm. so what you're saying is, well, let's say we get rid of that mindset where our, obligation or motivation is I have to keep up by constantly optimizing myself and instead say, all right, because I am loved and accepted, I'm going to delight in these spiritual practices that are fundamentally good. I might not be praying in the most efficient manner. I might not be reading my Bible in the most efficient manner. There might be yeah. a quote unquote better way to do this. Sure. My And so here's the thing is that to, to read, sort of, to, to practice these things Christianly, your top priority is not efficiency. Yeah. Right? It, 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 your, your top priority is just communing with God and learning yeah. from God, being ministered. And um, sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, if you think a lot about um, contemplation and, 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 you know, meditating on scriptures and thinking about scriptures and, and you know, that's not efficient, at least not in the way the world thinks about efficiency. So, yeah, yes, that's, that's great. And, and you know, that's even ha come to bear a lot on how I think about teaching other people things like this. The most efficient way is, well, you sit there and I'll tell you all the answers. Now you right. know the answers, but yeah. people don't tend to live out answers that they're just told that, but they tend to live out answers that they've experienced to be true. And so it's much less efficient to walk with them through the process of, of learning these things that you are pretty sure are true, uh, but that they need to, to come to the same conclusion that's more impactful and, and lands uh, better when they, when they do that process. Now, all that leads me to uh, the, probably the biggest question I had in my head coming in here is in a continuation of what we what we've got going in here there is this general identity you're you're giving us that it's very very helpful of you're not your own you belong to Christ so huh. that that begins to shape us somehow um but then there also there still is some specific identity in there because we're all different yeah and we're we're all different individuals i know that that term is <laughs> is baggaged I mean, and you know uh comes with all that so I, i'm curious how you see those two things as as living together because he, here's what i'm getting at tell me what you're getting at 
I'm I'm completely on board with what you're saying, and I'm trying to figure out how to reconcile it with the other things I think are probably true, which is God has wired me in a specific way. God has given me specific gifts that I need to use. So in one sense, I, I do want to live into that identity, if that's even the right word to use there. I want to be that quote-unquote best version of what I feel like God has created for me to be. But, uh-huh. but I have trouble putting that up next to uh, yeah. what we've talked about up to this point. So I'm, I'm curious how you would approach that. Yeah. So this is, this is, I, I try to spend some time on this in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not implying that you just didn't read carefully enough. <laughs> maybe, <yeah. It's, laughs> which it's, maybe, which maybe, I don't know. Anyway, completely so possible, I, 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 I'm not really comfortable with the idea of finding our identity in Christ. I, I, I think it's true. I'm not saying I disagree with it. I'm just sure. n- not comfortable because exactly what you said, the, the confusion that you just identified. Uh-huh. Uh, when we talk about identity in the contemporary world, Right. First of all, it's important to note this is not a you know a, a, an ancient Near East or a, a Greco-Roman conception of identity. This is a modern conception of identity, and it's it's different. And so it has all kinds of baggage and ideas. So, for example, when somebody will say, you know, what is my identity? Well, sometimes we just mean, you know, what is my social security number and my name, and my address, or something like this. Or sometimes it might be mean, uh, here's who I'm married to, here are my children, here are my parents. Um, sometimes it might mean, um, these are my tastes in movies and films and books and things. Sometimes it'll mean, uh, this is my lifestyle. Sometimes it'll mean, this is the brand that I project out into the world. It can mean yeah. So many different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, that's where I think we can get into trouble when we're ministering to people and we say, um, it seems to me that you're finding your identity in this. You need to find your identity in Christ. Um, sure. Because I know when I heard that growing up in evangelical churches, I kind of thought exactly what you described. I thought, okay, so, so are you telling me that there's like a personality and like a lifestyle and like a... Uh, you know, an attitude or, you know, do I have to change the kinds of things that I'm into? No, I'm, I'm not saying I, you know, I understand that there are probably some things in my life that are sinful that I need to leave, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. What I'm talking about is, is there some sort of, you know, idea or platonic ideal of being like Christ that I need to be into? And, and, and what I, looking back, what I think I had in mind was, you know, broad evangelical culture. Right. So when people would say yeah. you need to find your identity in Christ, I thought, okay, I got to listen to Christian music and wear Christian t-shirts or, mm-hmm. you know, like be into these sorts of things. Um, yeah. And like you were saying, does that mean that actually my gifts and my interests and my passions aren't, they don't, I have to get rid of those. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about identity, here's what I mean. Here's what I'm just going to get a little philosophical, but I think this will be helpful. Um, okay. Here's the concept of identity. Uh, Identity requires a witness. Any kind of identity, any conception of identity you can imagine requires a witness. For example, if you could think of a universe that is is unitary, it only has one thing in it, you can't, it doesn't actually have an identity. Why? Because there's no one outside of that thing or person to see it, to name it, to look at it. Okay? Mm. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Because as contemporary people, when we walk around saying, nobody can define me, right? Like, I'm going to be my own person. Nobody can put me in a box. Nobody can define me, tell me who I am, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're always actually also asking people to look on us with approval. We always want a witness. We always want someone to look at us and say, ah, that's Alan. He's this and this and this. And I approve of that. That's what we want. Um, and that is a form of identity. It's identifying being able to place someone. And so when I talk about in the book, when I talk about, okay, we belong to Christ, and therefore, when it comes to identity, we have our, our identity in Christ. What I'm talking about is what I tried to describe earlier, this idea that we do have a witness, but that mm. witness is a perfect witness, Right, yeah. and so that witness is actually even more, much more insightful than us, and he can see us in all our contradictions and confusions. So, what yeah. that means is, we don't. That doesn't mean getting rid of our passions unless they're sinful, right? Or, or our yeah. interests, our talents, our, our, our. What I would, I would put them in in the category of, let's say, use the language of personhood, right? Our personhood is always going to be unique in some way. That's great like that but but what i want to say is 
our identity is secure because there's someone that sees that unique personhood, even if no one else does, and he mm. loves us and affirms us. So that's mm. what I mean. Does yeah, that help? Does that make sense? Very, very helpful. Yeah, I think, yeah, identity is a kind of a loaded word. In some ways, I, I like starting there because those that is the way people talk about it, identity in Christ. But I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head in that that's also can be unhelpful in some ways to think about it that way. Uh, and yeah, so that helps me marry the two. Um, Glenn, Glenn, the co-host gets very frustrated with me because I can't think straight until I get everything lined out and then <laughs> we can move on. So you've allowed us to, to move on now. Wonderful. Uh, Great. Which as we kind of get closer to the end here, there's, there's two big things that we've touched on at some, but I want to, I want to hear what you have to say on it is one, the idea of we are not, we are not our own, but belong to God is inherent limitation yeah right which we are very uncomfortable with yeah <laughs> as as you said we really don't want to no. have to be bogged down by what someone what someone else whether that's god or not might want of us uh and so i'm curious how how is that actually good news yeah so um you know, you talked earlier about the sort of difficult parts of this book. Uh, and, and this is something <laughs> I'm still, I still regularly get comments from people who are, you know, on Twitter, people be like, hey, slogging through your book. I really like it, <laughs> but man, this first half. And I'm like, I know, I'm sorry-ish. Um, yeah. Because uh, uh, I, I do want us to wrestle with things that are, that are difficult, that are, that are, sure. that are challenging. Um, the because it gets us, it allows us to see that we can be free from these responsibilities of self-belonging. We don't, these burdens are lies told to us. And so near the end of the book, I give us this, you know, I, I try to explain to, to the reader, hey, we can throw these off because they're lies, they're myths. Um, your identity, for example, is certain. Your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him always. Like, it's not ambiguous. You don't have to be hunting to, to figure it out. These are, this is great news. But um, but then it does have this other side. So it's it is a liberating. I, I I hope a liberating book. But 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 it also for some of us, some readers are going to read it and think, well, okay, you 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 took these burdens off my shoulder, and now you put some other ones back on, right? Um, <laughs> because what you're saying is, if you know, if I belong to Christ, and in an analogous, not the same way, but in, in a similar way, I also belong to the church and to my family and to my neighborhood and to creation. I have these senses of belonging or belongingness to these things. That means I don't get to do what I want. Like I, I, I don't have ultimate freedom. And the and the the lie that I have been told, the myth, the promise that I belong to myself. According to that, I can, for example, if I get you know, if I find my marriage to be too difficult, I can say, well, I'm the one responsible for my happiness. I see someone out there who's going to make me more happy. Yeah. I actually have a, a kind of moral responsibility to myself to pursue that person. I can't, I can't stay here. That would be immoral. Um, but if we belong to Christ, it's the opposite. We have to say, yeah, it, it might be the case that that other person out there is a better fit in some sort of, let's imagine there's some objective way to determine this psychologically or temperamentally or whatever, right? That would be, this person would enjoy me more. They'd be attracted to me more. I desire them more. It would be a better fit. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I am committed to this person. I've made this vow and that's what I'm going to do. And, um, and this has all kinds of implications because it means things like I'm going to sacrifice for my kids. I'm going to make choices because I belong to my kids in some ways. Um, I, it means making sacrifices for your neighborhood, for your community and saying, okay, I could just treat my community as the place that I'm, you know, pitching my tent for the next few weeks. And then, or I could commit and, and say, I'm going to work for the good of this community. I'm going to put down roots and try to make this place a better place, a more just place. So, um, I'm going to commit to a church, for example, right? Instead of just treating it as, you know, shopping, church shopping, right? I'm going to commit. I'm going to say this is, even if the pastor convicts me about something that I, you know, a sin I don't want to recognize, I'm going to stay committed. Um, 
And that's hard. So and you asked the question, here's the way you framed it. You know, where's the comfort there, right? Because <laughs> you're just saying, Ali, you're just saying, okay, get rid of these responsibilities, now take these on. So how are we even, how are we in a better place? And the answer is yeah. that the responsibilities of self-belonging were not designed for humans. They're not on a human scale. They are inhuman. They're boulders that will crush us. We can't bear the weight. The mm-hmm. duties of belonging to God and others are duties that we were designed for. That doesn't mean they're easy. They might literally cost us our lives. I mean, that's what martyrdom is. That's what dying for, you know, protecting other people is. So it it can be extremely costly, but they're not the kind of burdens that crush our souls. Um, They're burdens that we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit and the help of the community, we can bear these burdens. And, um, the other comfort there is that they are bur- their burdens, rightly done, uh, designed by God for our good. Uh, and we might yeah. not always feel that or understand that, but it's true. It might not be measurable, but it's true. Um, and so we can know that that's actually going to be helping us to live um, rightly and more flourishing lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that is a. To me, that's the big takeaway is um, being your own can be very soul-crushing, but belonging to God uh, puts you in a place of soul security. Uh, And, you know, that has uh, implications for how we live, like you said, and and then what does it look like to belong to a church and to belong to your spouse and to belong to your kids? And that's a little more complicated because they're not, they, they may not be as secure a place as yeah. as God is, but because we're securing God, we can then engage in good faith in these other areas, um, knowing that on some level we are vulnerable. Yeah, um, that's right. But we're not ultimately vulnerable. That's right. Right. Like at the that's end right. of the day, our, our soul is still secure, um, which is not an easy thing to grapple with. No. But it's it's an important thing to grapple with. Like you said, the book still may take you a little bit to work through. <laughs> Oh, I'm just kidding now. But, no, it's true. Uh, it's true. But it's it's very worthwhile. Um, so the last thing I wanted to kind of wrap up with here is this is this is deep foundation work in a lot of ways. But I'm curious on the practical end, on this other end of it, you've done a lot of thinking about this, a lot of probably trying to figure out how it works out in your own life. What has changed? What is what? What could change for the listener? But even maybe what have you changed? What are things that you now do differently being rooted in the truth that you're not your own as opposed to the one the the lie that you are? Hmm. That's a good question. It's it's a difficult question to answer in part because of the way books um come about, right? Is that um yeah. the, the process of five years or more of sort of thinking through ideas and then so it's um what I would say is that when I'm thinking about my career and my family, my extended family, and uh, where I live, um, I'm I tend to side on commitment. Uh, um, I'll, I'll put it this way: I think our general stance, most people's general stance, is to see themselves as not committed to places, to companies, to people, to uh, locations, to houses, to be free to move. Um, and so the question, you know, if, if some new opportunity comes up, um, of, of course there's a possibility, you know, you can. And uh, so I, I think I've switched to the place where my default is to say, no, I have to have a really good reason. Like there's got to be a really strong justification for mm-hmm. pulling up roots because uh, yeah. I think we need to be committed to places. So that's, you know, that's that's one thing. Um, uh, you know, also, you know, being willing to spend time with people and be with people, um, you know, sacrificially, I think is important. Also, striving to create friendships, embodied friendships, where you spend lengthy <laughs> amounts of time together, which is yeah. super hard because everybody's so busy. But I really believe that that's, we need that. We need that. And um, it, it's costly. And it means that you're not going to get as much done um, in your house or at your job or whatever. But um, it's so valuable. So, yeah, those are the things that come to mind. That's good. Yeah, no, it's super helpful. And I resonate with a lot. Of, you know, I'm, I'm uh, 
we'll just say almost 30. I'm, I'm getting close. Uh, and I, I don't even like, uh, I don't even like sharing it because it puts me in some boxes that I don't want to be in and I want other people to put me in yet. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Uh, that being said, on the on the tail end of the whole quarter life crisis, like those are the things I've been wrestling with. Yeah. Like where now now that I'm getting older, I've gotten out of some of the young person things. I'm starting to think about the the things I thought were reserved for for sixty year olds of like where do I want to be for a long period of time? Who do yeah. I want to surround myself with and have long relationships with? And yeah. that's that's acknowledging that. Every single one of those is going to have its difficulties, yeah. uh, but but so is the other alternative. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, that that's super helpful. Um, yeah, I, I will just say I'm very excited. As a last point here, I'm very excited about the next thing you're working on. I did some digging. I follow you on Twitter, but I did some more digging today and kind of got into the thread where you're laying out a lot of these new ideas. And it seems like a very natural follow-up to to You Are Not Your Own. Uh, any any short blurb there about the thing you're, that's on your mind now that you are working toward? Yeah, so I think you're right. I mean, um, I think Disruptive Witness is a, um, lays the foundation for You Are Not Your Own, which is laying the foundation yes. for um, the next book, which is uh, going to be called On Getting Out of Bed. Um, <laughs> and so uh, that, that uh, I'm r- really exploring the question, um, w- why live? Which uh, I think for some people would be sort of an offensive question. Like, why would you even ask the question, why live? And and part of my response would be, well, you might not have experienced suffering enough yet, yeah. but yeah. Uh, you or someone you know will. And um, and part of the thesis of the book is that uh, even as Christians, we need to have an answer for that. It can't be a pat answer. We really need to understand why is it why is it worth putting up with suffering? What, what, what why why do that? Um, and the argument I make is, or one of the arguments is that when the time comes when you need an answer for that, you can't wait until then to come up with an answer. Because when that time comes and you're struggling mm. to get out of bed, you're not going to be in a good place to to make those judgments. So you need to know ahead of time, what is it? Why, why is it worth putting up with suffering? Why is it w- w- worth all the challenges and the trauma and the tragedy that that life gives us plenty of joy and beauty too um but but we talk about that all the time right but but mm-hmm. what's worth putting up with this suffering and you know i mentioned earlier the deaths of despair that 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 are you know ravaging our country and um you know so that's sort of in the back of my mind as i think through um you know this book and it absolutely is tied into the ideas of not being your own um, so yeah. I hope it's a it, it's a kind of book, you know, I'm not a psychologist, so it's not going to be that. It's not going to be a <laughs> memoir of mental illness, right? So it's not going to be that. I don't know exactly what, it's, what genre it is. Um, um, hopefully it'll read sort of like a letter from a friend who loves yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it'll, whatever it is, I think it'll be encouraging. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> if it's not... That- <laughs> that have had to wrestle with those things. Yeah. But I that's why as I'm reading through this I was like, man, I'm ready for for you to put this thing out when you're when you get done with it cuz I it, it's something I think we need to hear every now and then at least. We need to yeah. be reminded. Uh, so anyway, I look forward to that. I encourage anyone listening to to go follow you on Twitter. I think it's at the Allen Noble. Um, or they could check out the website oallennoble.com to, right. to keep up with, with the new things that might be coming out. Yep. Uh, and yeah, that being said, thanks a ton for being on the show. Thank you. The Bible and Stuff podcast is a production of Bible and Stuff. We do more than just podcasts, so if you want to know more about something we've covered on the show, just visit our website at bibleandstuff.com. Our show is hosted by Tanner Britt and Glenn Brand, and our theme music is by The Sing Team. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.